Welcome to an exciting forum of alternative viewpoints and balanced ideas. This is Good Morning Canada with Nav and Nav. That's Nav C and Nav M. Confused? Don't be, because two halves always become one. Now join us for an energized hour of global viewpoints and shared ideas, only for you. Now, here are your hosts, Nav and Nav. Hello and welcome to Good Morning Canada with Nav and Nav. I'm your host, Nav M, and welcome to another hour of Alternative Views. In this show, we help you rethink, reshape and reform ongoing narratives. As one of the most complex and charismatic figures of our times, Robert Francis Kennedy occupies a remarkable and paradoxical place in the American imagination. His admirers say he represented the last hope of revitalizing the liberal tradition, while his critics say he was consumed with self, selfishness and um, an opportunist, and he was also exploiting his brother's legend. But who was Robert Kennedy? What type of human being was he? How different was he from the myth that surrounded the family name? Part of him truly was a visionary and a radical and a prophetic voice. But was he ultimately a politician? And in some respects, he appeared too passionate, too vulnerable to be the confident, smooth operator his brother was. And in this episode, we try to establish a lasting portrait of what kind of man died when Robert Kennedy was shot on June the 6th, 1968, and what was his enduring legacy. But more importantly, what kind of leader did America lose? And did something irreplaceable die with him? A sense of vulnerability or perhaps a collective national conscience? So let's start with a, a brief introduction. In his lifetime, Robert F. Kennedy, also referred to as RFK, was an immensely controversial figure either deeply resented or passionately admired by voters, journalists and fellow politicians. He famously, famously said during his career in the Senate, quote, I'm the only candidate who has ever united business, labor, liberals, southerners, bosses and intellectuals. They're all against me, unquote. After his assassination in June 1968, his popularity skyrocketed and the critical voices lessened, although they did not disappear altogether. The critical voices, mostly right-wing in affiliation, focused on RFK's personal ruthlessness, his total dedication to his older brother, John's political career, and his involvement with the infamous McCarthy Committee. This was a series of investigations and hearings during the 1950s, and it was set up to expose apparent communist infiltration on the of the US government. So after his assassination, Robert Kennedy effectively became a martyred icon and has remained a constant presence in American political discourse. His death was portrayed as a significant loss for the American nation and the political system, but he continues to serve as an icon to both conservatives or classic liberals and also although this was obvious in his lifetime because he was highly unpopular on both sides of the political divide. Later in this episode, we'll explore the legacy of Robert F. Kennedy and how he became one of the most primary liberal icons of the post-1968 era. So let's start with some context. What do we mean by liberalism in America 
Firstly, we should recognize the difficulty in defining liberalism from an American context, as well as positioning Robert Kennedy within one particular type of liberalism. He's frequently mentioned as the quintessential modern liberal, a true representative of social equality, while others have focused on his ability to combine conservative and liberal elements. However, due to the complexity and changing nature of his political thoughts, we argue that Robert Kennedy represents an icon for various strands of liberalism. And I'll introduce three versions. The classical context, the modern, and from a political philosophical point of view. So let's start with the last one, the philosophical viewpoint. What is American liberalism? As a political philosophy, liberalism is an approach which advocates individual liberty, pluralism and compromise based on rational debate. It includes characteristics such as the sanctity of private property, the value of opportunity and the natural evolution of self-interest and self-assertion of the individual. Secondly, let's look at classical liberals. They believe in small government and free markets, in particular strengthening local and state government rather than federal government. And using this definition, Republicans generally fall into this category. And let's look at the last category, which is modern liberals. They believe that the federal government should outbalance capitalist forces, especially where individual liberty might be threatened. And based on this definition, Democrats generally fall into this category. And it was in the New Deal era of the 1930s where the current distinction between conservatives and liberals arose based on the scope of the American welfare state. So now we have some definitions. Let's take a brief look at the life of Robert Kennedy. RFK launched his political career in the early 1950s, working as legal counsel first for Senator Joe McCarthy and later for the McClellan Committee, which targeted corrupt union leaders. He launched what many perceived to be a personal crusade against organized crime in the late 1950s as part of the Senate Rackets Committee particularly against Jimmy Hoffa, who was the leader of the very famous Teamsters Union. He was mainly interested in law and order and adopted a binary worldview based on his deep Catholic faith and his zeal as a Cold War warrior. And during the years when he managed John Kennedy's campaigns for Senate in 1952 and for president in 1959, he earned a reputation for arrogance, ruthlessness and grit determination. His ruthless demeanor made him widely unpopular with intellectuals, liberals, and the majority of the Democratic Party. He was named Attorney General in 1961 under the administration of President John F. Kennedy. And the time spent in the Justice Department was the perfect opportunity for RFK to combine his liberal sentiments with key conservative standpoints. His methods in the war on organized crime, particularly the lack of respect for civil liberties, were deeply resented by the liberal arm of the Democratic Party. Also, Southern Democrats and Republicans resented him even more when he aligned himself with black Americans in their struggle to end segregation. Yet it was John F. Kennedy's death in November 1963 that would redefine his political role. His image as a ruthless opportunity opportunist was moderated by his newfound vulnerability and personal grief over his brother's death. 
and later a senator for New York, he was able to liberate himself from his older brother's legacy and set about creating his own identity as champion of the weakest citizens. He would transcend the traditional classic versus modern liberal argument by campaigning for the fundamental needs of, of its citizens while focusing on the dignity of the individual and helping to empower the community. And in the next section, I'll briefly outline the events which led to the assassination of Robert F. Kennedy. On 16th March 1968, RFK announced his candidacy for president, competing with liberal favorite Eugene McCarthy and Vice President Hubert Humphrey. His campaign focused on ending the war abroad and uniting Americans at home. After the death of Martin Luther King on April the 4th of the same year, Robert Kennedy emerged as the best hope for social and racial unity in America. However, his campaign ended when he was shot shortly after winning the California primary in June 1968. RFK had just delivered his last speech at the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles. The party standing on the platform made its way off stage to leave the hotel and the senator, along with his wife and others, took a shortcut into the kitchen where he was shaking hands with hotel staff. Suddenly, several shots were fired and RFK was fatally wounded. As he lay dying on the floor, he spoke his last words. Is everyone all right? He soon slipped into unconsciousness and never woke again. He was rushed to hospital and survived a little over 24 hours before being pronounced dead on June the 6th, 1968. RFK's funeral, and particularly the train ride from New York to Washington, D.C., has become part of the Kennedy legend. Along the tracks, thousands of mourners waited to see the train pass. People of all ages, races and social backgrounds paid their last respect to Robert Kennedy in what was described by filmmaker Charles Guggenheim as an unbroken chain of sadness. Robert Kennedy has been transformed in the American conscience and very few people associate his image with the abrasive prosecutor, the aggressive politician and the outspoken advocate. His enduring legacy is that of war critic, champion of black and Mexican Americans, proponent of young and old alike and all those who have been discarded by social and economic progress. However, there was a much deeper significance to Robert Kennedy's death. There was a feeling that it marked the end of an era and that the last hope for the poor had died. Icon, myth, legend, legacy, these are all powerful ways to describe an individual. So let's examine some of these themes. Firstly, Robert F. Kennedy as a nonpartisan icon. His ideological complexity combined with his strict moral values and made him an appealing figure to those on, on the left and the right. The public image of RFK is one of non-partisan leadership, and this proved to be an advantage to his overall legacy because it broadened his appeal to both liberals and conservatives, but also to an American public distrustful of ideology. So let's look at RFK as an, a democratic icon. The image of Robert Kennedy as an ideal tough liberal is still used by Democrats today. RFK was perfect for the Democrats due to his personal res resilience and focus on law and order, which meant he couldn't be labelled by conservatives as the archetypal weak liberal. And at the same time, he represented change, equality and hope. 
especially in his role as the last liberal who could reach out to both racial minorities and working class whites. RFK will clearly remain a significant icon of liberalism, but both Democrats and Republicans tend to choose the part of his life which they find convenient for their own purposes. And this is because Robert Kennedy did not follow the narrow lines of traditional liberalism versus modern liberalism. And he proposed political solutions which appeal to both party. So let's turn our attention to RFK's work on the problem of social exclusion, which he's probably known for most out of all of the issues which he, he uh, advocated. When we view his approach to poverty and social exclusion, it's clear that his critique of the underlying problems holds as true today as much as it did in the 1960s. In the globalized era of 2021, we see how many economies around the world operate in the absence of democratic institutions, affecting not just millions, but billions of people across the world. RFK was greatly influenced by John Kennedy's approach to the aspirations, needs and challenges of lesser developed countries and continued to champion this cause during the Senate years and in his campaign for the presidency. He firmly believed that a unprecedented revolution was sweeping through the third world based on social change and individual advocacy. And he argued that the US was able to influence its direction and course only if the leadership in America understood the nature of the upheaval. He envisaged a new type of international community that was more humane, inclusive and just. He also reimagined the sense of community in the United States so that the core problems of poverty, isolation and alienation could be effectively overcome. And at the center of RFK's vision was the need to restore dignity to the individual person. And throughout his public career, his search for community was central to many of the domestic issues he engaged in. He considered poverty to be a threat to all community levels in the US, and in turn was a strong advocate of cohesiveness between the individual and the community. RFK focused on social exclusion by exploring the separation of the individual from the life of the community, as well as those decision-making process at the heart of American democracy. And after his assassination, it would take decades for others to rediscover what he had already spoken about so eloquently in the late 1960s. For instance, RFK called into question the accuracy of using gross domestic product or GDP and the Dow Jones Industrial Average as indicators for determining whether American society was healthy or not, arguing instead for a multidimensional approach to well-being based on factors which went much beyond basic living standards. And examples of these include health, education, political voice, governance, social connections and relationships. And more importantly, the, the issue of insecurity from an economic and physical or mental standpoint. His insights were far ahead of his time, reflecting a deep sensitivity to human purpose and a shared sense of common fate and destiny. And in this context, the era's great focus on poverty and equality was actually a debate between visions of society, who was inside and who was outside. 
who belonged, whose needs and wants would be met with a public response. And some of these questions will now be addressed in our next section on RFK as champion of the underclass and global statesman. During the 1960s, RFK Im embrace of social justice was evident as he dealt with a range of polarizing issues across the US. He was acutely aware of the dangers of social exclusion from wider society. And he launched community development projects dedicated to slum and ghetto redevelopment as showcased in the Bedford Stuyvesant New York project. And historian Arthur Schlesinger described Robert Kennedy as the tribune of the underclass, referring to his unparalleled journey in pursuit of social justice. The statesmanship of Robert Kennedy was clearly evident in his travels abroad. He was a strong advocate to end apartheid in South Africa, a vocal advocate of the emancipation of Latin American peasants from the tyranny of dictators and local landowners. His arguments for land reform and renewed citizens' rights made him a champion of the underclass, but also a global statesman. He was also scathing of a high-level US plot implemented by the CIA to overthrow the democratically elected head of state in Chile, Salvador Allende. His criticism was justified because it violated democratic principles, in particular the consent of the people. And this aspect of foreign policy is very important in the, in the next discussion that, that we'll elaborate on, because it was a, this part of foreign policy was a key component of what became known as the neoliberal model of America. And as an ide ideological model, neoliberalism became a cornerstone of US policy under the Reagan regime in the 1980s. And it was closely aligned with banking magnates, David and Nelson Rockefeller and their various business allies in the 1960s. The policy framework of the Kennedy administration towards Latin America was in direct conflict to the Rockefeller empire and its vast business interests. RFK viewed it as an anti-development exercise and contrary to the democratic aspirations of people throughout the third world. And a key case in point is when RFK made public his disagreements with Nelson Rockefeller and the role of Standard Oil in Latin America's affairs in 1965. Also during the summer of 1965, Robert Kennedy challenged Peruvians to act for themselves, much to the ire of the Johnson administration. But more importantly, the thrust of RFK's argument was his criticism of David Rockefeller's approach to individual liberty and therefore altering the framework of the classical liberal argument, which we discussed earlier on. Indeed, Rockefeller suggested that US policy should not only prefer private enterprise, but oppose public or nationalized companies. Rockefeller's approach was to create a precursor to establishing new neoliberalism in the coming decades under successive US administrations. And understanding RFK's objections are crucial in, the, in, the, in this ongoing discussion because we see parallels in today's global society. Neoliberalism is an economic model that privileges private corporate power and shuns democracy and voting rights. It seeks to remove the government's role of protecting civil and human rights by pursuing an agenda of 
lower social and health services, outlawing labour unions, the reduction of wages and privatising public entities. So in all of these cases where neoliberalism has been applied is ended with severe austerity. During the mid-1960s, what Rockefeller wanted was a general US policy that discouraged all nationalisation, but was extended to corporations abroad, and especially under the uh, sphere of American influence. So this ongoing battle between the Kennedys and the Rockefellers was part of a broader struggle over the nature of US world influence. Because according to the Rockefeller brothers and their business associates, the Kennedy administration had made had made economic growth secondary to social reform and political liberalism. And they believed that the components of idealism would be a difficult apparatus for subsequent US administrations to dismantle. However, only two months after President Kennedy's assassination, there was a significant change in US policy. The Rockefellers and their business allies immediately positioned themselves to access the higher echelons of the Johnson administration when it was announced that bankers, traders and investors had created the newly formed Business Advisory Group on Latin America and also the Council for Latin America. And they were both headed, interestingly, by David Rockefeller of Chase Manhattan Bank and representatives from major corporations such as Standard Oil. The aim was purely to develop a neoliberal model based on social and economic repression, which would become the forerunner of the modern globalized model that we see today. In contrast to the Rockefellers and their corporate ideology, Robert Kennedy pursued an alternative economic model which promoted human progress, human rights and self-development within third world nations. By 1965, it was evident that RFK's political and economic philosophy represented a major roadblock to the business interests of the financial elites representing the industries of oil, banking and other huge multinational corporations. And RFK's critique of the neoliberal model was designed to reclaim America from the grip of unconstrained capitalism in search of endless profits. And to quote Tennyson from his poem Ulysses, RFK's objective was to seek a new world where the Rockefellers were dedicated to preserving the old world. RFK committed himself to do all that he could to alleviate human suffering wherever possible. His connection to the world of suffering and his identification with the victims of social injustice, the poor, the have-nots and the socially excluded, spoke volumes about the personal and public faces of Robert Kennedy. His capacity to disrupt the established order of financial elites was also duplicated in his approach to foreign affairs, which was characterised also by social justice and social change. In essence, RFK wanted to end colonial and neo-colonial practices, while the Rockefellers and their corporate allies wanted a continuation of these very same policies which had served their profit-making ventures in the third world for so long. And other elements of this financial web of opposition included the IMF, the World Bank, and the JP Morgan banking interests. So now let's take a a look at arguably the most remarkable period of Robert Kennedy's life, the transformation of RFK. The death of Jack Kennedy in 
November 1963 left RFK without an anchor in his life. And this was for two reasons. Firstly, he had devoted his entire adult life to furthering his brother's career, suppressing his own competitive instincts. And secondly, he was unable to rely on his father, Joe Senior, who had suffered a stroke in December of 1961. At the age of 38, despite being the heir apparent to the Kennedy family name, he had no idea what would come next. What Would he retire from public duty? Would he serve under the Johnson administration? Or would he take a new direction? And he had now reached the point of physical, emotional exhaustion and also sensed his waning power within the Johnson administration. But as time progressed, no one could have anticipated the social advocate that he was to become. And despite a sharp decline in his personal health, he lost weight, he became an insomniac and suffered from clinical depression. It was during this dark, mournful period that Robert Kennedy began his intellectual journey in the search of his own interpretation of the meaning of life and death. The American journalist Jack Newfield famously asked RFK when did he actually begin to read poetry? And he replied, oh, at the very end of 1963, I think. And this was an important period for RFK because the reading of poetry transformed him into a much more spiritual and intellectually vibrant person. The reading included poetry, philosophy, the Greek tragedies and other contemporary works that forced his mind to think in different ways. And as 1964 progressed, it was clear that he could not continue as Attorney General and he began to speculate on what to do next. RFK maintained a serious interest in becoming vice president, but not to serve under the Democratic Party or President Johnson, but to carry on his brother's initiatives. However, when Lyndon Johnson informed him that he would not be a candidate for the vice presidential nomination, this effectively destroyed what little remained of their relationship. And Johnson instead nominated Hubert Humphrey. Then Two days later, uh, sorry, two days prior to the Democratic Party convention, RFK announced his candidacy for the New York Senate on August 22nd, 1964, and subsequently was sworn in as Senator on June the 4th, 1965. Robert Kennedy's Senate career was defined by his toxic relationship with Lyndon Johnson. But he soon found his stride in the Senate, where he was able to pursue advocacy on key issues such as education, welfare, poverty, race and civil rights. He was becoming the embodiment of his brother's myth, and he began to align himself with a romantic notion of what his brother stood for. Factors such as peace, the fallen warrior, civil rights activist and vanguard to the next generation. So we're just coming up to a short break now. There'll be much more to come in the next segment. We'll see you very shortly. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. 
We're with you wherever Alexa and Google are. At home, in the car, on your smart TV, and your connected devices. Hey, Alexa. Hey, Google. Play my favorite Voice America podcast on TuneIn. It's just that easy. But don't forget to make sure you actually mention the name of the podcast show to make it work. You are listening to Good Morning Canada with Nav and Nav. To find out more about us and the ideas behind our show, visit our website at gmc-radio.com. That's gmc-radio.com. Now, back to Good Morning Canada. Welcome back. You're listening to Good Morning Canada with Nav and Nav. It's great to have your company. So let's pick up from where we left off in the last segment. We were discussing the transformation of Robert F. Kennedy. And as he began his career in the Senate, he was his conscience was especially shaken by the racially charged Watts riots in South Central L.A. in 1965, which highlighted the deep divisions prevalent within the United States. And to many observers, it seemed that the nation was unraveling at the seams. And this event drew him back to the divisive social issues, especially among young liberals who were demanding recognition and reform. But he certainly did not agree with the violent demonstrations being used to illustrate those points. So he began to look at the wider picture outside Washington, D.C., especially the structural problems plaguing many of the the inner cities. And one such cause which he took up was a section of New York City called Bedford-Stuyvesant. And this was a rundown area adjacent to Harlem and was home to nearly half a million blacks and Puerto Ricans. And essentially it was a stark image of decaying infrastructure and social deprivation. And after touring the area and witnessing the effects of economic stagnation, He enlisted the help of foundations such as the Ford Foundation, the Taconic Foundation and Astor Foundation to provide substantial grants and resources. And RFK brought in members of the business community in a way that other people couldn't into the fold because only he was able to persuade them. And consequently, Bedford Stuyvesant became the test case on which to improve the conditions for inner city minorities, which was replicated by many other politicians in years to come. And it was through his hard work and also on the part of the inhabitants and the support of elected officials and the business community. So this was a prime example of RFK's personal philosophy and commitment to racial justice. He believed that government and the elite had a clear responsibility to the least well-off in American society. It also illustrated the the real cost of diverting billions of dollars to foreign wars such as Vietnam. The fight for civil rights and personal freedom was also close to his heart due to the JFK assassination because he felt personally connected to the dispossessed, the underclass, the downtrodden. They became his concern because he also felt he had lost everything when JFK died. The events of 1963 allowed him to speak authentically to people who were in deep pain. They sensed his grief and his genuine concern for them as individuals through the open wounds which he was still nursing after John Kennedy's death. 
And through his study of Greek tragedies, RFK was comforted by reconciliation through his own faith in God with the experience of human suffering, realizing the wisdom that he received through pain and struggle. His transformation during the mid-1960s focused on the plight of the poor, especially African-Americans and Native Americans. RFK educated himself on the real-life conditions of blacks in America by walking among the poor of the Mississippi Delta. He visited the starving at Native American reservations in the western states and upstate New York. He toured the shanty towns of South America. He observed apartheid in South Africa. And Robert Kennedy's message was an appeal to reason, justice, and humanity. And another issue that he devoted himself to was the plight of migrant workers in Southern California. He marched through the grape fields of California demanding better pay, improved working conditions, and adequate housing. And this was an issue that RFK was well-versed in, having previously dealt with issues of organized labor as chief counsel to the Rackets Committee. So he had an, a, uh, a good understanding of the inner workings of American labor unions. And between 1965 and the end of 1967, RFK was gaining a real insight into who he was and who he had become and what he wanted to do. He found his calling in the plight of the underclass, poor people of all races, the silent majority occupying America's shadowy world of poverty and despair. And as early as 1965, RFK was looking at Vietnam in a new light and began to express deep reservations about American involvement in Vietnam. He was concerned about America's long-term reputation. And he was also disturbed by President Johnson's escalation of the war as, as evidenced by the dramatic increase in troop deployment. It was also a moral issue to RFK in view of the loss of life and he'd become an early advocate for a peaceful settlement. And although peace talks did not reach the satisfactory conclusion until 1973 when President Richard Nixon announced the withdrawal of American forces from Vietnam, it was RFK that played a major role in both the escalation and the push to leave the worsening situation in Southeast Asia. So on March 16, 1968, from the Senate caucus room in Washington, D.C., RFK announced his candidacy for the presidency of the United States. And once he joined the race, RFK began campaigning to recapture America's moral vision in the wake of the violence at home and abroad. And this speech also reflected the deep division between RFK as a person about the journey he was about to embark on and also the moral indignation at the state of affairs facing, facing the US. And although late in the political season to be running, RFK had to distance himself from the Johnson administration. And this act was perceived as a swipe at Johnson himself and a tentative move towards a Kennedy re restoration and the possible fulfillment of JS JFK's unfinished tenure as president. But more importantly, it was his legendary zeal and moralistic, fatalistic outlook on America, which resonated with so many millions of voters. Many people felt he could suffer with them, but also appreciated them as equals. 
and through his own deeply personal experiences, RFK humbled himself and brought equality to others. Robert Kennedy's deeply spiritual experience was necessary in order for him to construct a prophetic voice. And because of his visionary journey, which required submitting to total acceptance of his suffering, which continued to afflict him after his brother's death, what seemed clear is that his decisions in the 1960s seemed driven not by winds of politics or public opinion, but by his own inner voice and inner conscience. So let's take a look now at another unique attribute of RFK, which was the moral voice. And what we see is an inherent duality to RFK's focus on the future, as indicated in the title of his 1977 book, To Seek a New World, because he openly challenges the errors and shortcomings of the United States. And although his message was to reprioritize the US national agenda, it was a call to unity and reconciliation. And he also remains fully immersed at the same time in the present world, confronting injustice, prejudice, poverty and violence through a journey of self-awareness. And this conflict between despair and the promise of Kennedy's dreams is given new meaning following the death of Dr. Martin Luther King from a sniper shot as he stood on a hotel balcony in Memphis, Tennessee. This was exactly the violence and intolerance which Kennedy had shunned and was often so vocal about in his previous speeches. RFK was on his way to a rally in Indianapolis where he was about to speak to a largely black crowd. And at the time, his aides debated whether it was wise for him to address the crowd given the, the volatile mood. And he delivered the news about Dr. King in, a, in, a, in such an eloquent way, he walked directly into the potential storm and in an attempt to comprehend King's assassination and the possible meaning of it. Given the gravity of the situation, the speech was largely impromptu, but by the end, the speech constructed a prophetic ethos that invested RFK with the moral authority to speak to the disenfranchised as a source of wisdom. And in his prophetic voice, he convinced the audience to adhere to natural law through reason and justice. And it's regarded as one of RFK's finest speeches, brimming with idealistic vision in response to the imminent threat of violence. And I'd like to share a few lines from that remarkable speech. Quote, for those of you who are black and are tempted to be filled with hatred and distrust at the injustice of such an act against all white people, I can only say that I feel in my own heart the same kind of feeling. I had a member of my own family killed, but he was killed by a white man. But we have to make an effort in the United States. We have to make an effort to understand, to go beyond these rather difficult times. Let us dedicate ourselves to what the Greeks wrote so many years ago, to tame the savageness of man and to make gentle the life of this world, end quote. After the speech, the crowd, already in shock and disbelief, returned quietly to their homes. And while many of the cities in the U.S. burned that particular night, Indi Indianapolis was subdued. 
the speech was also notable because he spoke for the first time about Jack Kennedy's death, which he'd never done before. And in the next section, I'll begin to build a picture of the legacy of RFK. So when we review RFK's legacy against the backdrop of historical events, there are many notable milestones in its evolution. Let's take a look at some of these now. By the time of his death, Robert Kennedy had been able to create a political legacy independent of his brother. And he was honored by both his enemies as well as his allies. Even his political opponents recognized his support for the average citizen and compassion for the weakest in society. Had Robert Kennedy lived and potentially won the presidency, it seems evident from historical records that his respect for democratic elections as well as his commitment to human rights would have drastically reshaped U.S. national security policy as well as altering U.S. foreign policy. To a large extent, his legacy of social change represented the true spirit of Robert Kennedy and what he advocated. While RFK emerged from a privileged background, it would be incorrect to say he was a product of the capitalist system. Instead, he had always, throughout his entire public career, actively opposed capitalism's worst abuses and the way it, in which it was employed as an ideology of profit before people by the leading elites. His approach was evident in the way he dealt with the prosecution of Jimmy Hoffa, who had allowed organized crime to infiltrate the Teamsters Union and his battles with the Rockefellers over the treatment of migrant workers in the U.S. It's also fair to say that RFK's legacy tends lends significant weight to a critique of the current version of capitalism in the form of globalization. Although neoliberalism is the dominant form of globalization, it's not the only one because there is another parallel to globalization which exists. It's essentially a counter reaction and it comprises transnational networks and alliances built on social movements, social struggles and non-government organizations. And these various initiatives have mobilized to tackle social exclusion, the destruction of the environment, biodiversity, unemployment, human rights violations, and inter-ethnic conflict. Interesting, the, these global trends of the late 20th and early 20th century reveal the importance and ongoing significance of RFK's commitment and his progressive views on social reform. They also serve as a glaring indictment of the, the policies pursued by later President Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger in continuing the Vietnam War unnecessarily. Also, we have to look at the complicity in reversing the trends towards social change in Chile during the early 1970s. In the aftermath of Allende's overthrow by a US-backed military junta led by General Augusto Pinochet, the entire Chilean nation was placed under martial law. The ensuing government sanctioned assassinations of political opponents, human rights abuses, unconstitutional government practices and draconian police state tactics. And there was mounting evidence of US complicity in what can only be described as crimes against humanity after, after the 1973 coup. Consequently, between 1974 and 1976, Congress passed 
a range of unprecedented human rights legislations in an effort to dissuade President Ford, who came after President Nixon. And these were laws which enshrined This record of legislative achievement in the field of human rights can be directly attributed to the legacy and human rights commitments of Robert Kennedy. The political orientation and worldview of both of the Kennedy brothers was derived mainly from, from many, many influences, but chiefly among these sources was the inspiration that they derived from the New Deal years in the 1930s the political and moral leadership of Franklin D. Roosevelt, because this was a philosophical reference point for what eventually became known as the new frontier. So let's start wrapping up our discussion with some conclusions. Firstly, the, the tragic end of RFK's life brought to an end a highly complex man's personal pain. It also coincided with a period when the United States became a country on the verge of anarchy and revolution. The events of June 1968, combined with the death of Dr. Martin Luther King and the upheaval of the Democratic National Convention, suggested that America was in deep trouble, politically, socially and economically. Robert Kennedy cast a long shadow across the political spectrum of American national life. His memory has been invoked on a regular basis by many politicians since his untimely death. But his life was exemplarily of what men should be, to search inward, to question themselves, to question life, truth, justice and faith. And this combined with a profound sense of introspection forced RFK to make the most out of his short life. His pursuit of corrupt figures is well known and the justice for he sought for the underclass and the goals to make daily lives of every human being better are evidence of his commitment to civic and political duty. And this point is clearly demonstrated when we view how the neoliberal model has progressed from the early 1960s to its current incarnation of globalization with free trade agreements, worker exploitation, the demise of the union movement and a new social paradigm which ignores worker rights. The Rockefellers, the capitalist class and the very successful in implementing the neoliberal economic model, which promotes a dynamic of social and economic repression. And in its present 21st century guise, we see the rise of monopolistic practice through transnational corporations such as Google, Amazon and Microsoft. Key features of the liberal neoliberal platform include a model which views human labor as a resource to be ex exploited as cheaply as possible a model which binds people to a treadmill of continuous consumption, a model which is built upon competition and advocates cooperation only in the self-interest of the most powerful, a model of development which pursues business stability at the expense of human potential, a model which exchanges consumer goods for the price of individual freedom. So in the light of previous discussion, it's evident that RFK's prophetic vision of social, political and economic reform was significantly at odds with the worldview and priority of the financial elites. 
Robert Kennedy continued to pursue key initiatives such as the Alliance for Progress, which was launched by his brother, and continuing the cause of social reform where his older brother had left off. And this was a battle that would come to define RFK Senate years as he continued to revive institutional reforms and social development programs. His unwavering commitment was based on his belief in the cause of human rights and his personal preoccupation with human suffering. And this was especially so in his support of the, of the foreign aid program, which was designed to further economic development and free third world nations from colonial and neo-colonial arrangements. But more importantly, what we see is that RFK understood all too well that by uncritically and compulsively seeking to rely on the external factors of our existence, namely the material wealth that we accumulate and the techniques and processes that we adopt to make our lives easier, ultimately what we achieve is an impoverishment of the internal dimensions of life that offer true purpose and meaning. And he saw this very, very early on after the assassination of his brother. Because this became a catalyst for drawing out his unique personal qualities. And the primary reason was that he felt he had lost everything at that point. So Robert Kennedy was indeed one of the most influential and powerful figures, not only of his time, but the 20th century overall. His influence continues to this day as politicians can continue to use his speeches and try to invoke his memory. RFK was indeed a transformed man by the end of his life because he stood shoulder to shoulder with those who were oppressed by mainstream society. And there are very few politicians on a national level that have collectively embraced domestic issues of race, peace and poverty as Robert Kennedy did in 1968. Although RFK certainly did not have all the answers, he was willing to investigate the questions and stand firmly with those who suffered needlessly. He emerged from grief and despair as someone anchored in his own self and his vitality energized the presidential campaign of 1968. Many others witnessed this sense of personal growth, and it was a realization of prophetic status which clearly moved people. And as Harris Woford recalls of Robert Kennedy at the time of his assassination, he had the determination to make radical change, not the radical change of the left, but radical on things that needed the passion to see it through. He certainly wore his heart on his shirt sleeves because of the time spent with disenfranchised people. RFK appealed to natural law by proclaiming violence as the inevitable course for American society unless citizens sought a new form of redemption. He presented reason and justice as the opposite of the mindless violence which was being perpetuated by American society through the early and mid-60s. RFK was a global statement, a global statesman who transcended narrow definitions of national interest. His compassion for the millions of, of people who suffered and 
the oppressed people around the globe was intimately connected with his personal belief and commitment to the power of progressive social movements, democratic aspirations and the advancement of civil and human rights. And in this sense, Robert Kennedy blended his roles as both a champion of the underclass and a global statement. Had he survived, of course, many things would have been very different. American social activist Tom Hayden wrote in the 1980s that if you believe that Robert Kennedy would have won the presidency, his death becomes one of the central events of your life. That single event was the death of hope for peace in Vietnam for several years to come and the death of political hope for many people. Undoubtedly, there is an incalculable legacy which remains following his death, especially in view of the political generation which grew up around RFK's ideas. And this was more notable in the immediate aftermath of the Watergate scandal due to the significant public pressure on the government to become more transparent and the and more so as the influence of Robert Kennedy was detected in the new intake of elected officials. Robert Kennedy may not have been a prophet for the Democratic Party, but he did pioneer programs and approaches which others would only recognize years later. His four-year journey from Cold War warrior to radical liberal was a transformation which took the main body of American liberal 30 years to appreciate. Also, Robert Kennedy's full impact on the development of economic liberalism has yet to be fully realized. Although much has been written about him since 1968, many commentators have found it difficult to separate real substance from the martyred effect. For instance, all of RFK's early biographers knew him personally and so lacked the necessary detachment to provide objective analysis. And in this sense, it was Ralph Waldo Emerson who wrote that each age must write its own books, or rather each generation for the next because the love of the hero corrupts into worship of his, stat of his statue. The point being here that to engage in the ideas of the original lighter, not to slavishly replicate them. Furthermore, we know that folklore often becomes legend. Many Hollywood and media accounts of his unique political period cast RFK as a successful leader on the way to nomination. In fact, his campaign was struggling, especially after Johnson announced in his speech on Vietnam that he was not seeking a second term. And this had a damaging effect on his own campaign because it removed one of the, the, the main pillars for his anti-Vietnam stance, uh, which was the focus of uh, Johnson's war record. And another fact which is overlooked in many popular accounts is, is just before the California election, the other anti-Vietnam War candidate, Eugene McCarthy, decisively defeated RFK in the important Oregon primary. And no previous Kennedy campaign, including Jack Kennedy's, was ever in such a precarious position. McCarthy actually consulted with Kennedy in challenging President Johnson, but at the time RFK stated he would stay out of the race. And it was only after McCarthy's success where Kennedy reversed course, which later reinforced a damaging reputation for ruthlessness. But in the final analysis, we, we will never know if RFK would have won the Democratic nomination or indeed whether he would have gone on to become president of the United States. 
But what we do know is that he embodied the aspirations of so many people and personified a commitment to public service, which was respected in decades to come. His ideas reflected a fearless commitment to social change that transcended the moral superiority of corporate America, which had little interest in human rights. His thoughts and speeches projected a spirit of openness to an alternative perspective to other ideas and a world of diversity. And from an alternative perspective, it was his flaws that were the most revealing because it's only once we see the suffering of a man through his wounds that we are able to fully appreciate the real transformation that takes place. And in RFK's case, it was not from man to myth, but from man to undying flame. And that's all we have time for today. Many thanks for listening to Good Morning Canada with Nav and Nav. We really appreciate your company. If you have any comments on any of the issues discussed in today's show, please send your feedback by emailing us from our Voice America host site. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 noon Eastern. Thanks so much. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to Good Morning Canada. Please join NAVC and NAVM for another great program next Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time and 12 noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you soon.